A rather underwhelming NFL Sunday was highlighted by a couple of key injuries at quarterback and Joe Burrow beats Patrick Mahomes again. College football's Final Four is set. Despite TCU's loss, they deserve to play on December 31st. Also, primetime takes the leap as he goes from Jackson, Mississippi to Boulder, Colorado to join the ranks of the Pac-12. Jacob DeGrom has 185 million reasons to leave New York. What does this mean for him and more importantly the Mets? USA exits the World Cup. What's left as we get deeper into the round of 16? Tyson Fury's comeback is a successful one as he calls out another heavyweight to meet him in the ring. Your boy is revved up and ready to go as I share my thoughts on everything that's cooking in the sports kitchen. It's all coming up, but first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You could also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media. I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December. But what really counts is let me see this in January. Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the j Rose Podcast. Welcome aboard. What? Is happening, Michael people. Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? I hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. December is in full swing, and same for the sports world, as I have plenty to tackle, dissect, and divulge. As this is the J Reels podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back. Quite a bit to get into. I'm not going to discuss anything that's happening on the hardwood or the ice with the NBA and NHL. Not much has happened since Thursday. I get it. The Laker fan wants to puff out their chest and realize that the basketball world has not forgotten about them considering they've won three in a row and Anthony Davis with his 55-point barrage in Washington yesterday. So I'm going to put that aside. We could reconvene on Thursday when we discuss the association. Same for the ice because pretty much the Devils keep winning. The Bruins keep winning at home. Everything seems to be status quo there, but with the NFL and Week 13 about to conclude tonight, a game between New Orleans and Tampa, and even though I know some people in some circles will look at that as an important game, but we'll take a look back on what happened here over the course of not only just yesterday, but even Thursday night as I go through my winners and losers. And it's interesting because the two winners of the week could be big losers in the long run, and I'll explain Winner number one goes to the Baltimore Ravens. Now, yesterday's game was as ugly as it could possibly be. 
Not only do they lose their quarterback late in the first quarter on a play where the defensive lineman, I believe the linebacker, had tackled Lamar Jackson to the ground where he left the game with a knee injury. Diagnosis is unconfirmed right now, but it does look like he's going to miss days, maybe even weeks, as stated by head coach John Harbaugh. So everybody in Baltimore, I'm sure they're holding their collective breaths, knowing that this team is now 8-4 and four, as they get ready for this stretch run, the final five games of the season. And without having Jackson there with Tyler Huntley, who is pretty much a Lamar Jackson clone, or maybe Lamar Jackson light, if you will, he pitched in. Little bit of a slow and sluggish start for him, but they were able to score in the final minute of the game, actually the last 30 seconds, to where Tyler Huntley ran it into the end zone from two yards. They were down 9-3, it seemed like forever, and the Ravens were able to survive with Huntley and beat the Broncos, who as we all know, it's been a long season for Russell Wilson, Nathaniel Hackett, and I'd be shocked if he makes it out of Black Monday. I mean, if he is not fired by, what is that, the, I guess it's January 11th, which would be the, no, actually it would be the 9th. That's when the season will end. If he's not gone in Denver, then the new ownership group, the Waltons, they need to either sell the team again or they're going to have to bring in people who know how to handle football operations. But that's another story. Right now it's about the Ravens. So we're going to see what it's going to be like for Baltimore during this stretch where they do go to Pittsburgh this coming week. They still have to go to Cincinnati, week 18, which could be for the division. They still have to go to Cleveland. They still have some tricky games on their schedule. So we will see what's going to happen with the health of Lamar Jackson as we move forward. But that was a big win for them. And what what happened in Cincinnati later on in the day, which I'll get to, they still keep pace a half game ahead of the Bengals, although they're tied in the win and loss column at 8-4. and four, But knowing that they have a half game lead with the head-to-head matchup early this season on Sunday night in Baltimore where they won, they have the leg up in the AFC North. My second winner of the week goes to the San Francisco 49ers. And even after the first play of the game, where Tua took over Loa through a 75-yard touchdown pass, and you're thinking, oh no, this could be a track meet for the Dolphins, which is going to be a very interesting stretch. And I talked about this the other day. The first of three road games, they came into yesterday in first place with that half-game lead over Buffalo. And with the Bills winning a not-so-pretty game, and I'll get to that in a minute, in Foxborough, the... Dolphins tried to keep pace, and even though with the quick strike out of the gate, they weren't able to be their usual selves. Tua took over low, not a good game, but again, let's turn it on the Niners, where San Francisco had a scenario early in the year. We know about Trey Lance with a broken ankle out, and when Jimmy Garoppolo was taken down to the turf there at Levi Stadium, he got up on his own power, but left the game and was diagnosed that he has a broken foot, It's going to need surgery, and is out for the remainder of the year. Now, San Francisco was able to rebound under backup quarterback Brock Purdy, and Purdy was pretty because he did put up decent numbers. He did play pretty well. I get it that the Dolphins probably didn't have any tape or scouting report on this guy, so therefore, generally when a guy comes off the bench and nobody's even ever heard or even seen him play, Chances are, and it seems like in the last couple of years, more often than not, these players end up thriving and doing well in their first performance. Just look at Taylor Heineke as an example. So Purdy was able to do the job. The Niners were able to put together a bunch of different drives to where they ended up winning 33-17. They did get a fumble recovery to tack on at the very end to extend that score. And the Dolphins did not have a good game offensively. I know Tua had a bunch of turnovers. 
But the Niners, even without Garoppolo, you have to wonder. They're going to keep it simple for Brock Purdy. It's pretty much going to be the same recipe, whether it's going to be running the ball as much as they can. Purdy will make the short throws, the easy throws, the necessary throws, not to make the mistake to be that game manager. And as long as he does that and the defense, as usual, rises to the occasion, you would think the Niners, although they take a hit, and chances are, I'm sure their Super Bowl odds went down a little bit. But if that formula does hold up for Kyle Shanahan and company, you would think that they may have a long January ahead. But we know that the quarterback does have to make some plays. He can implode. So we're going to see over the course of these next five weeks whether or not Purdy is going to be able to do the job and take the Niners, hopefully, to at least an NFC Championship game like they did last year and maybe even to Glendale for the Super Bowl. But that's for well down the road. But those are my two winners of the week. My losers of the week... First off is the New England Patriots because with that performance they put up there on Thursday night, a highly anticipated game between Buffalo and New England for this reason. Buffalo was 0-2 in the division here in the first 12 weeks of the season, both losing at Miami and at New York against the Jets. And now they had to go to Foxborough where the Patriots needed the game in the worst way to keep pace in the AFC playoff picture as it was the Jets' loss, so they're still... In contention, although on the outside looking in at this very moment, but even with the Patriots taking a 7-3 lead the way they did early on in the, or late first quarter into the second quarter, but from then on out, it's almost as if the Patriots went to sleep. Their offense wasn't able to muster up any type of sustainability as far as drives, and Buffalo, not to say they did whatever they could or did whatever they wanted, but it was pretty much a rocking chair game from that point on, including at 10-7 when they got the touchdown right before the half. And even though they only scored a touchdown after that to make it 24-10, but the game was never in doubt. Mac Jones, you see in the video, he's voicing his frustration to run the effing ball or really to pass the effing ball because they weren't able to muster up any type of offense. And the Patriots are licking their wounds knowing that they have at least 10 days until their next game this coming weekend. But... As of right now, you have to wonder whether or not the Patriots are going to be in this thing because for Bill Belichick, as we've seen here over the last couple of years, without the big-time quarterback, he has struggled. And yes, there have been moments that Mac Jones was good in his rookie year, and I won't go as far as saying that he's regressed, but he certainly has not improved. So the Patriots at home in their building Thursday night where maybe they could have snatched another win and put another division loss to the Buffalo Bills, that was not the case. So they're my loser number one. My loser number two, and this is going to be a tie, I hate to say it, because we did have one yesterday, and that goes to the Commanders and the Giants, because the Giants, they stunk it up there toward the end where the Commanders got a late touchdown to push the game into overtime, and then as it was, both teams weren't able to muster up any offense, although the Giants did get into Commander territory twice in the overtime, with the second time setting up for a 58-yard field goal that certainly had the range, but didn't have the distance as it fell short. Both teams tie at 20, and you can say, all right, big whoop, no harm, no foul. You don't want to have a tie, but it's better than a loss. Well, here's the thing. They meet up in two weeks. In fact, the Commanders have a bye this week, and their next game is against the Giants down in D.C. That is going to be monumental because you can forget about head-to-head in a sense where if they were 1-1, and then they will go to the division tiebreaker. Now that game is going to be for all the marbles to see whether or not that team is going to advance because... If Washington wins, the Giants could be out. 
and the same if it's the other way around. Now, mind you, Philadelphia comes up the turnpike this weekend to play the Giants, so that's another enormous game for the G-Men if they want to stay relevant and stay in this NFC playoff picture. But when it comes to the end of the season with tiebreakers, the only tiebreaker they have is against each other and not pretty much against anybody else. So even with Washington on their schedule, knowing that they have Dallas coming into their building, they do have to go to San Francisco, which is not going to be an easy game. And the Giants, we already know that their schedule is going to be tricky. They have to go to Minnesota. They still have another appointment with the Eagles in the last day of the season. So their schedule is not going to be easy. And this tie, I believe, hurts them more than it helps them. And again, it's all going to bank on that next meeting 13 days from today down in D.C. to see whether or not either one of these two teams will be a part of this NFC playoff race. That's what I have there. As far as the whole Week 13 schedule, there were a lot of interesting matchups. There were some games that you could actually sink your teeth into. The one game in Minnesota between the Jets and the Vikings. Now, the Vikings had taken control of the game. And then late, Mike White, who threw 57 passes in the game. And I didn't watch every play, so I'm not going to go ahead and judge to think why the Jets threw 57 times. Excuse me. But for the coach, Robert Sala, and even to put Mike White under that spotlight to where he had to throw that many times and it ended with an interception there on the goal line as the Jets were driving there in those final few seconds as they lose 27-22. Now that would have been a big win for the Jets if they pulled that out because then there would have been two games ahead of New England and remember, New England has the tiebreaker against the Jets where they swept them during the regular season and that would have given them a nice cushion and not have to think or even worry about New England when the dust settles after week 18 if they do happen to have the same records. That's for then, but at least for now, the Jet fan, they still are going to be wondering whether or not Mike White is going to be the guy. He did show some flashes. He did show that he has capability to lead a team, but of course, it ended up short on the goal line there against Minnesota as the Vikings go to 10-2. and Then you had Kansas City go to Cincinnati, which that was a rematch of the AFC Championship game. And for the Bengals, they got out of the gate quick with two touchdowns on their first two scoring drives. Little by little, the Chiefs answered back and they had a big stop there at the end of the first half where the Bengals were deep in Chief territory and they stuffed them there on a fourth and short as the Bengals went for it. The Chiefs ended up taking the lead later on in the game, 24-17. But then what happened was after a field goal, Joe Burrow came storming back, gets a touchdown there with about eight and a half minutes or 8.50 to go in the game, and they were able to hang on against the Chiefs. Third time that Joe Burrow has beaten Patrick Mahomes pretty much within a 365-day calendar view because they beat him last year in late December in Cincinnati. Of course, you had the AFC title game and then now. So maybe you got to wonder if they do meet again down the road sometime in January, does the edge belong to the Bengals and Joe Burrow as they have a little bit of a psychological advantage there against the Chiefs. We'll have to wait and see if they do reconnect, but that, as of right now, is a very interesting, I'm not going to say rivalry, but it's an interesting matchup knowing that Mahomes has not gotten the best of Joe Burrow as of yet as he's 0-3. So that's one we'll have to pay attention to, especially when we get to next month. Other than that, you had a lot of duds on the schedule when it came to some of the bigger games of the day and with the Jet Minnesota game being a good one Washington and New York you thought it was going to be good that ended up in the ties we saw of course we just went over the KC Cincinnati game 
The Sunday night game, do I even need to get into that? That was just a disaster. I get it, it was 21-19 heading into the fourth quarter, and then the Cowboys scored 33 points in the fourth quarter to win 54-19. So the Colts were no match at all, even though they did make it competitive for three quarters where they had a shot to tie the game, but they foiled on a two-point conversion. And then from that point on, it was just south for the Colts. Speaking of south, I'll go to the AFC South where Deshaun Watson was back in the mix. First time under center in 700 days. He goes to Houston, did get booed. And we talked about this on the podcast Thursday. He didn't meet the media on Wednesday and then did meet them on Thursday in the late morning, early afternoon. Of course, deflected any questions, not only toward what happened over the past year and a half, but even his mindset, even his thought process, not only getting back on an NFL field, but the irony of coming back to the franchise, the city, the stadium that he played in in the first, what, three, four years of his career. And he didn't say anything. I'm just focusing on this game, focusing on football. So he didn't answer any of those questions pertaining the stuff that happened off the field, which I get it. It's time to move on. But still, as I said then, and I'll say now, you want to rip that bandaid off, answer those questions, and then move on. But they're going to hang over his head between now and the end of the season. Who knows if this is going to give the Browns some life as they are now 5-7 and seven in the AFC. They're still way on the outside. I'm not going to look at them as a playoff contender in the conference, but they still have some tough games. I believe Cincinnati is on the docket this coming Sunday and they got to go to Cincinnati for that game. They still have Baltimore coming into their building. They have to go to Pittsburgh later on in the year and we all know division games are tricky. So I think Cleveland's not going to be a team that's going to make it to the postseason, but now with Watson, who was rusty in the game, he was not good. And that was expected. I'm sure there were a lot of nerves for Deshaun Watson as well, even though they did win 27-14, but it was not pretty by any stretch of the imagination. Watson was 12 for 22 for 131 yards and did throw an interception. So it wasn't as if his return was resounding or at least impressive in that regard. But you have to wonder whether or not the psyche of the team may shift a little bit to where they think they'll have a shot knowing that they have their quarterback in the fold. Another game that looked great on paper was the Titans going up to Philadelphia to play the Eagles. And what was that for? That was blowout central, 35-10. The Titans were no match for the best team with the best record in the NFL as of today. 11-1, Jalen Hurts, another impressive performance as he puts his name into the MVP Ring throwing his name in the hat because of what Mahomes did yesterday. Not that Mahomes was bad in the game, but Hurts, considering these numbers, 29 of 39, 380 yards, three touchdowns, and he did throw a couple to A.J. Brown, which was a bit of a revenge game for him. Remember, the Titans traded A.J. Brown in the offseason to Philadelphia where A.J. Brown got paid, and all he did was catch eight balls for 119 yards and two touchdowns as the Titans, again, no match for the Eagles, And the Titans are going to be that team that are solid, most definitely not spectacular. And from one week to the next, you can never predict how this team's going to play. When you think that they could be competitive and play in a game where they may be tied or within one score in the fourth quarter, and next thing you know, they're getting their doors blown off with a blowout like yesterday. And then when you think they're going to get blown out or think that they have no shot, that's when they go and surprise you and play well and do the things that they do to keep themselves relevant in the AFC. So the Eagles continue to march on where the Titans, they're going to be fine because they're in a division where nobody's going to challenge them. Uh, they could be 9-8 and eight and they're going to win a division because as of right now, the Colts are what? 4-8-1. and one. 
And I believe they have their bye this coming week. So you know that they're going to be out to sea. Of course, you're not going to see the Jaguars or the Texans be a part of the AFC South mix. So the Titans are going to be in cruise control to get to the end of the season. And chances are they may end up being the four seed when it's all said and done. Speaking of Jaguars, am I going to get into Jacksonville, Detroit? Detroit winning 40-14. to Some of these games I just cannot get into, people. And as even as I cover the NFL and go through all these games, same for Green Bay and Chicago. I get it that Chicago had a big lead early and then they poured it on late with Green Bay finally getting on the offensive attack. Justin Fields, although I had a 55-yard touchdown, but his numbers at the quarterback position when it comes to throwing the ball, not impressive to say the least. And we have to wonder whether or not We've seen the ability, we've seen the flashes, but when you keep him in the pocket, that's what most teams are going to concentrate on. Once he gets outside of that, it's the danger zone, but Fields, not impressive yesterday at all, and the Packers are trying to hang on to whatever playoff hopes that they had, and by winning yesterday, they did do so, but again, I think it's going to be way too little, way too late for them. Pittsburgh wins in Atlanta. I know I'm a huge Steeler fan and I dissect these games, but as we get deeper into the season, there isn't really anything to discuss. Kenny Pickett, again, solid, not really spectacular, did the job. Their defense was fine. Mariota, late with the pick as they had the ball at the shadow of their own goal line while they tried to march down the field with no timeouts left and Fitzpatrick picked them off and Fitzpatrick did the right thing, Minka that is. He slid, or he didn't even slide out of bounds. He went out of bounds on the play instead of going in for the touchdown The touchdown would have made it 26-16. I get it with 28 seconds to go, but in this day and age, you just never know. And he did the right thing with the Falcons not having any timeouts. He just ran out of bounds. All Kenny Pickett had to do was take a knee and the game was over. So the Steelers, a little respectability here. I get it. You're not going to go crazy over wins against the Falcons like there was yesterday or even the Monday night game in Indianapolis, but... You don't throw away wins and style points don't matter when you're just trying to progress with the young quarterback and just continue to improve. And let's see if the Steelers ruin some plans for the Baltimore Ravens and play spoiler as they'll invade the, I was going to say Heinz Field. It's no longer Heinz Field as we know. It's what, Akashure Stadium, which doesn't roll off the tongue the way it should. But anyway, that's a game that nobody's going to really care about. Same for Seattle, although that they're in the playoff mix and we have to include them, but Geno Smith, 367 yards, what a performance that he had. Again, it was against the Rams and we all know the Rams have just been putrid this year, but they did pull out a victory at SoFi 27-23 as they keep themselves afloat and I'm sure they're going to have their sights set on the Division 2 with the injury to Garoppolo and not knowing what Brock Purdy's going to do as far as his performances for the rest of the year. So I'm sure they're going to continue to put pressure not only in the division, but also for the conference to try to make it as they continue their success story life after Russell Wilson. And then you had Vegas beating the Chargers. No surprise there from this regard. The Raiders had a big lead, two big touchdown passes from Derek Carr to Devontae Adams. The Chargers tried to make a surge late, but it fell short. Typical Chargers, when you think that they're going to win, They lose, and when you think they're going to lose, they win. And here it is, a road loss in the desert to Vegas. And Vegas has actually played a little bit well here over the last few weeks, and good for them. Obviously, they've had a nightmare of a season, but this little stretch here where I believe they won three in a row, maybe that's something that they could build on as they get closer to the end of the year. Not that they're going to make it to the postseason, but at least for Josh McDaniels, nobody's going to probably call for his head, at least for right now. 
And if they continue to develop and continue to just build whatever type of continuity and camaraderie that they have in Las Vegas, maybe that will bode well for next year. But we shall see. Besides that, people, that's all you have. Tonight, New Orleans and Tampa, I don't even know what to tell you. We know that New Orleans plays Tampa well. Although Tampa did beat them in week two earlier this year. That was the game where Mike Evans got into the fight there with the cornerback and got thrown out of the game and then got suspended. Tampa's going to need the game with Atlanta losing again yesterday and the division with Carolina also having a bye. I would think they're going to be in good stead. But a win tonight will certainly go long and far as far as not having to sweat it out during these last five or six weeks. So we shall see. I would think the Buccaneers will win, but New Orleans, I'm sure there's going to be a last-ditch effort for them. I believe Joe Buck and Troy Aikman will hammer that narrative home too, knowing that New Orleans is still within arm's length of the NFC South. So be that as it may, they're not going to fool this football fan. I know that it's pretty much Tampa's division to lose, even with them currently at 5-6. and six. And that's what you have here in a Week 13. The two quarterbacks, Garoppolo and Jackson. Jackson should be coming back, you would think, days and weeks, but I'm sure they're going to maybe not take their time because the Bengals are nipping at their heels. But I would think maybe for this week, you're probably going to see Huntley on the center against Pittsburgh. And as for Garoppolo, with him being done and probably maybe even done for his career in San Francisco, I would think Trey Lance will be back as the starter next year, provided that he is 100%. But now it's all on the shoulders of a third-string quarterback and a one Brock Purdy to see if he could lead this Niner team into the playoffs and through January and into February, which is going to be daunting for the young. And I believe he's a rookie. Off the top of my head, I don't even know because I didn't watch the game. But I believe it's going to be, I won't say tough sledding because they're going to do whatever it takes to kind of give him that safety net. But Purdy is uh, definitely going to feel the pressure as he tries to do his best to get his team as far into January as he can. And that's what I got for the NFL. Of course, I'll get into week 14 on Thursday's podcast. As we move it along here, I want to get to the college football. And the college football gods, they were working their magic upstairs because everybody thought going into this weekend with the top four and the way it was, how Georgia and Michigan, no matter what they did in the game, and as we saw... Georgia just took LSU to the back of the woodshed, winning 50-30. to And then Michigan, although Purdue was in the game for at least a half, or even into the third quarter, but then Michigan did what they had to do to beat Purdue and win comfortably. But everybody looked at TCU and USC, where USC played Friday night and TCU played Saturday afternoon. And a lot of people thought that these two teams would probably win and solidify their spot into the college football Final Four, and USC, I tell you, that was just a putrid and pathetic performance there Friday night, and I understand that Utah beat them earlier this year, and I get it that they probably hammered it home all week, Lincoln Riley, the coach, to say, remember, these guys beat us, so we cannot take them lightly by any stretch, and as it was, they came out of the gate, they led 17-3 to late in the second quarter, and you're thinking, all right, well, USC with their big win against UCLA the week before, And knowing that it was all in front of them to make it to the college football final four on New Year's Eve and for them to have the early lead the way it was, okay, Utah does get a touchdown there and actually two touchdowns late as they tie it in the final four minutes of the first half. But from that point on, 
as it was 17-3, I believe they scored that touchdown with about 3.50 to go. They outscored the Trojans 44-3 in a game. And if you're Lincoln Riley, this is a loss that's going to stick to your ribs and the administration, etc. Because what the hell happened to the Trojans in the second half is beyond me. And even Cameron Rising, the quarterback who took a vicious hit in the game, but by him getting up with his helmet off and didn't seem unfazed or even dazed, that was indicative of how the Utes of Utah performed and stood USC at the 50-yard line right in the eye and said, we could take your biggest punch and you didn't even come close to knocking us out. And in turn, they did the knockout by showing USC, wait till next year, my good people, because what they did in that second half is almost beyond comprehension. And I don't know what else to say. I know Caleb Williams, who is probably going to be your Heisman Trophy winner this year. I'm sure there's going to be some factions for Max Duggan, the quarterback at TCU. But for Williams at 34-24, and this was pretty much the, I'm not going to say the turning point of the game, but this was the biggest point of the game at 34-24 where he throws the interception, an opportunity for them to at least cut it to possibly seven, maybe even three. And then for Utah on that ensuing drive to take it to the house, to score a touchdown, they didn't get the extra point, to take it to 40-24, to that was the game at that point. And Williams, who had a hamstring issue and no excuses, this was a guy that pretty much carried USC all year long. And in its biggest game after the 17-3 lead, their offense wasn't able to muster up anything. And the defense gave up 533 yards. If anything, I could give more blame to the defense than to the offense because for that showing from the four-minute mark of the second quarter through the rest of the game, it might as well they should have been in the hotel or on the bus or even back at campus because that was just as inexplicable as you could possibly ever imagine. So that says bye-bye to USC. No way that they were going to make it considering they already had one loss on the docket. And then you had TCU where they went up against Kansas State. And this was a game that pretty much came down to the final quarter and a half. I know it was back and forth there early. You had a scenario at 20 to 17 where the Horned Frogs were going in for the score. And he was picked off there deep in Wildcat territory to where the Wildcats were able to score a touchdown. Deuce Vaughn was the MVP of the game and had a great showing. When he scored to make it 28-17, I thought to myself that the game was far from over, but this is where we want to see the medal and the toughness of TCU because they've come from behind in some of these games during the regular season, as you saw in the graphic, five different times this year. But this was going to be their biggest test. And if they were to make it competitive and at least lose valiantly, you would think that the committee was going to look at that and say, chances are, we're going to bring this team in because at least they did show some fight and fight is what they showed. If they would have went meekly out in the rest of the game and let's say they lost 31-17 or even 35-17, I'm sure the committee would have looked long and hard to think that despite the fact that they made it to the conference championship game undefeated, but for them to lose the way they did, maybe they would have another team other than Ohio State be a part of the Final Four come New Year's Eve. But as it was... They showed their toughness, they showed their mettle, and it was exemplified by their quarterback. Because all he did was try to run for first downs, all he did was try to will his team back to tie the game, all he did was try to fight through tackles, barrel through the offensive line, do whatever it takes. 
And he was just unbelievable there in the final 20 minutes of the game. And that kid showed a lot of toughness. He showed a lot of heart. There isn't any much more that I could say other than he left every ounce of blood, sweat, and tears on that field. And I mean that literally. As you saw in the post game, I mean, he was literally beside himself knowing that they were that close. And even as they tied the game late and got the two-point conversion, and in the overtime, this is where the game, and I get it that a lot of people in that region are going to be thinking they should have kicked a field goal instead. But they got the ball first in overtime, and they got right there to the goal line. And it was a little bit more than a yard where it was fourth and goal. I hated the play call. I thought they should have snuck the ball considering that's all that Max Duggan had done throughout the course of those final few drives in the fourth quarter and into overtime, just will his team to victory and they handed it off and it got stuffed at the line and you just knew at that point all Kansas State had to do was kick a field goal. And I get it, you could debate on whether or not they should have kicked a field goal just to preserve a tie and see where it would go from there. But I get the mentality of TCU all year. Pretty much that, not necessarily underdog mentality, but of course, not belonging, not going up against the Blue Bloods, the top schools in the country, the Georgias, the Michigans, etc. They want to be classified and be in the discussion with those schools in this nation. And for them to go for it there, I had no problem with it. But I hated the play call. They just should have put it on the shoulders of their quarterback and try to get that initial push from the line of scrimmage and maybe even with a push from the running back to try to get him in the end zone, if that was to be the case, I think they would have won the game. But in essence, by them not making it, that's what doomed them. But I'm happy that they made it to the college football Final Four, and when we could review this, where USC's out, TCU stays at three, and the reason why they stay at three, and I'm a, I can't say I'm a little bit surprised, but I thought maybe, just maybe, they would put them at four But there's no way that they would move Ohio State up two spots to play number three. And if they were to do so, think about this. You would have a rematch between Ohio State and Michigan. And that's the last thing that the committee or college football or even the fans want to see. They'd rather have that scenario in a national championship setting. So even though I thought at first, maybe Ohio State would leapfrog over TCU. But it makes sense. They played terrifically, even in defeat. And even with... Them losing, there was no way that you could drop them down a spot and have Ohio State leapfrog over them. Not only just with the matchup with Michigan in the semifinal, but because of how they played and they were undefeated in a conference championship game where Ohio State obviously were nowhere near the conference championship game. You could just move them up one slot. Alabama on the outside looking in and your final four is set for December 31st. TCU and Michigan in the Fiesta Bowl. 4 o'clock, where at 8 o'clock in the Peach Bowl, you'll have Ohio State and Georgia. And Ohio State and Georgia will have plenty of time to have a preview of the game and give you my predictions. Obviously, we'll talk about that, what, three Thursdays from this coming Thursday off the top of my head? Yeah, that'll be the 8th. It's on the 29th. Obviously, I will go ahead and preview that and give you predictions, etc., But that is a home game for the Bulldogs. That's going to be at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium down in Atlanta. So Ohio State is going to head into a buzzsaw and a hornet's nest knowing that the game is going to be pretty much clad in red and white. So plenty of time to talk about it. I agree with this. I'm sure there's some parties out there that think that maybe Alabama should be in and TCU should be out. 
But again, based on everything that I said, and I'm sure the committee felt the same way, by them being undefeated throughout the whole year, and even though it took the overtime for them to lose, but they did not deserve to be out of the top four. And I understand, people are going to look at TCU and Michigan, and maybe after the first quarter, Michigan's going to be up 14-0, and the game's going to be over. I get that. And you'd rather see competitive football, especially at least for one game. You would think Ohio State and Georgia would be a little bit more competitive than TCU-Michigan. I could get that and understand it. But this is how it is. Until we get to the 12-team playoff in two years, this is how it's going to be. But you know what? I'd rather it be this way. Because I'm tired of seeing the same matchups over and over. I'm tired of seeing the same Clemsons, the Ohio States. And I get it, the Ohio State deserved to be there based on what happened with USC. But you want to see a little bit of variety. Now, if TCU gets taken to the back of the woodshed and gets beaten 35-7, all right, we're going to look at that and say, okay, unfortunately, that's the breaks. What are you going to do? But guess what? Two years down the road, we're not going to have to worry about that because the teams who do make it, whether it is an underdog team or we'll just call it an at-large team as if this is the NCAA tournament in men's basketball or women's for that matter, but... We can look at that now, but it's not going to be for the long term. So even if another team next year, a Cinderella type team makes it to the Final Four and they get bludgeoned in the game, again, you just have another year of this and that's that. But I prefer to have some fresh blood in there because it does set it up at least for one game, an opportunity for them to put on that glass slipper and make it to the championship game and then who knows. Now, chances are they probably would get whacked in that second game, but... That's sports. Maybe one year before the college football playoff expands, we'll have a chance for a TCU or even last year, a team like Cincinnati get to a championship game and somehow, some way, win the thing where it would be the biggest thing that we've seen in college football in quite some time. And that's why we have this set up the way it is as of the last, what is it, decade with this college football playoff. To have that team, whether it's come out of nowhere or the team that has no expectations of winning a national title, now put themselves in position to at least get to the game and therefore even win it. So we shall see if TCU is going to be that team, but we're going to have to wait three and a half weeks for that bell to be rung and to get that question answered. And then you had a big hiring in Colorado where Deion Sanders, the now former Jackson State coach, there, the HBCU there in Mississippi, and he just came off of another conference championship now it's time to him to go to greener pastures to take that leap to go with a buffalo roam out in colorado in boulder and i think this is a good move for Dion. colorado there's going to be some expectations now with sanders there to see what he does as far as recruitment and i'll get to that in a second but with what he's done there in his two years at jackson state now to be able to graduate to get to this level it's obviously going to be a whole different set of circumstances for the Hall of Fame cornerback. And listen, I wish him well. I hope he does phenomenally. I hope whatever success he had there in Mississippi, he could translate that to the Division One. And we all know that Jackson State is a Division One, but in a subdivision of that. But now that he's going to be part of the Pac-12, he's going to go up against Lincoln Riley. He's going to go up against Chip Kelly. He's going to have to battle for those recruits, whether it's in California or Arizona or in that region. I'm sure he's going to go back to Florida and try to pluck some players from the South to see if they could come over to Boulder, which is a far cry from Arizona or Southern California or even South Florida. So for 
him to try to tell these young boys, all right, we're going to have to deal with a lot of snow and a lot of 20-degree days, but you're going to be under my wing and let's see what we could do there in the Pac-12. I get it, but recruits are going to be the priority. Let's see what he does there, which is going to be enormous because he's going to have to go up against the USC's, the UCLA's, even the Oregon's of the world to try to get players to not go there and to go to his program. And then the other thing is, and I not to say more importantly, but the other thing is with Dion, because he's going to go to one of the Power 5 schools, and we know pretty soon USC and UCLA, they're going to be gone from the Pac-12, but he's going up a step in class here. And how he's going to be able to handle that, we all know recruiting is first and foremost. We get that. Because if he doesn't get the players, he's not going to be successful. But he's going now to a level of competition which is going to be nowhere near what he's faced as a coach down in Jackson, Mississippi. Is he going to be able to handle that? Is he going to be able to do more of the X's and O's? Is he going to assemble a staff that's going to be able to handle that while he's going to be that motivator? He's going to be that guy that's going to push these guys and try to get them through a brick wall, so on and so forth. This is where it's going to be fascinating. Now, we're not going to have to see or experience that until we get to late August and September of next year. But we all know with January around the corner and the recruitment process and National Signing Day and where these players are going to end up, it's going to be interesting to see. And I'm sure Dion's already starting to pick up the phones or send out the emails to certain kids or to certain schools, high schools, whatever it may be, to say, hey, you want to jump on board? Well, I got you. Let's get it. And let's see if Dion is going to be successful in trying to get these kids to his school. Because if he doesn't do that, he's going to have a lot of four and eight, five and seven, maybe even six and six type years. So I send them all the best of luck and congratulations. And I hope he does well. I will say that, but he's going into the deeper end of the pool. So it's going to be interesting to see how he's going to not only just wade in those waters or even try to tread water, but let's see how he's going to be able to swim knowing that he's going not only a step, but a class up as far as competition goes from... Jackson, Mississippi to Boulder, Colorado. Now as I turn my attention to the hot stove, so as I put on my oven mitts, forget about the batting gloves or the helmet, and try to see what we got cooking in the stove, in the oven, or on the stove and in the oven. I got it backwards here, people. We had a major signing here over the last few days, and on Friday night, that one hit home because Jacob deGrom the two-time Cy Young Award winner of the New York Mets going back to 2018-19, opting out of his deal right before the beginning of the free agent frenzy here this offseason. And even with all the reports that had come out, whether the Rangers were going to be part of this mix, as well as the Atlanta Braves, there was even a report that the Rays could have been interested only because him wanting to be close to home. And for the Rays, I don't know what that deal was going to be. I'm sure they were just kicking the tires to get an idea And maybe a lot of that money was going to be deferred or backloaded. But you don't have to worry about that, Rays fans, because where he ended up was pretty much the destination that a lot of people thought he would end up. And that's in the Dallas-Fort Worth area for the Texas Rangers, signing a five-year, $185.5 million deal with an option for a six that would increase it to $222 million. And as we know, Jacob deGrom, when it's all said and done, he wanted the security over winning. That's the bottom line. 
And I understand that the Mets had countered. They were going to give him a similar deal to what they gave Max Scherzer last offseason. Somewhere in the vicinity of three years on $120 million. And I'm sure DeGrom probably looked at that as an insult. Because it's like, oh, you're going to give Scherzer, my contemporary, that money. And then expect me to take that same deal. When I'm A, younger. And B, he's of course he's going to come out and say that he's 100% healthy and sound. Based on what he did when he returned to the rotation there in the middle of July. So he spurned that Met offer. And actually from what I've read... He didn't even go back to Steve Cohen or Billy Epler, the GM, to say, can you counter that? Nope. He figured that there's no way the Mets are going to match that, so he took it, ran with it, God bless him, and as I said, on YouTube, on my channel, quick plug there, at J Reels, or any of my social media accounts, whether it's Instagram or TikTok, if I'm Steve Cohen, I would have not have paid him that amount of money either. Because as we all know, he is just one pitch away from getting back to the IL or worse, being out for a lengthy period of time. As we've seen here over the last few years. And granted, even when he came back, what was he, 5-4? and four, His ERA was a little bit over 3. Yes, he did have some moments. Even in the playoff game, he didn't pitch great. In fact, if you remember, in that playoff game when the Padres tied it after the second inning... From the second inning to the fifth inning, all he did was throw sliders. And then the sixth inning, he started throwing his fastball, and that's when they pulled him. So DeGrom, God bless him. I hope he does well in Texas. He does visit City Field, or the Texas Rangers, that is. They visit City Field in late August. I believe it's the 27, 28, 29th on the top of my head. So who knows if he's going to be in line to pitch. Obviously, that's a long way from now. But I'm sure those games, a lot of people are going to want to buy those tickets, especially if he's going to pitch. And who knows what kind of reception he's going to get. Right now, I have to say off the top of my head, his reception, it's probably going to be mixed at best. I don't know if it's going to be a scenario where he's going to be cheered and given a standing O, or if he's going to get booed out of the building. I'm sure if he's going to pitch, He may get a standing O, and I hope the Mets do not play simple man by Leonard Skinner to give him any type of, I'm not going to say send-off. You know you're going to get the video tribute. Okay, understood. But if he gets on the mound, there's no way that they could play that song to just try to get him even more amped up to pitch against his former team than to play that song right before the bottom of the first inning. So, way too early to even take the temperature of what the response is going to be. But as far as... Me, the Met fan, I am not hurt by this. By no means. Again, they could use that elsewhere. And I'll segue to that. What does this mean for the Mets now moving forward? Are they going to re-engage and entertain the thoughts about bringing Justin Verlander if they were going to give the Grom that similar deal? Three years for 120, will they do the same for Verlander? I would think yes. And who knows, maybe Verlander's going to ask exactly what Scherzer got, which I believe was what, 130 million over three years, something equivalent of that. I could see that, and who knows, maybe the Mets will even give him that extra $10 million if he asks for it. I'm not going to like the signing because now it looks like the Mets are going to hire a bunch of mercenaries, but I get it. You're going to have to plug in what the Grom once was with a guy that it's close to, if not even better, than the Grom even at 39 years of age and coming off of Cy Young. That's something that you have to entertain and certainly look at, Mets fans, or even Carlos Rodon, he's a guy that the Met fan could look at and maybe get even cheaper 
if you want to bring both of those guys in, and I'm all for Rodon because they do need a left-hander, can you rely on a guy like David Peterson to not only stay healthy, but to give you anywhere between 30 and 32 starts? So those two guys I would certainly look at unless they're going to trade for a pitcher, who knows? But if I'm the Mets right now, I would certainly look at Verlander as an option to see if they could bring him on board. Now I get it, Verlander, even with him coming off of Tommy John surgery a few years back, maybe that does stick in the back of your mind. And him with some nagging injuries, remember he had that calf strain late in September or late in August into September where he had to sit out a few games. But we know Verlander, he's a guy that when he's healthy, he's one of the top two, three pitchers in the game. And if you're willing to put forth that money in those years similar like you did to Scherzer, then why not do it for Verlander? Again, you're not giving him five, six years like you would for DeGrom and then hold your breath hoping that he doesn't go on the aisle with any shoulder or elbow issues. So that's what I have there. So DeGrom, good luck. I'm not shedding any tears and haven't shed any tears and certainly haven't felt even a bit of pain, quite honestly, where maybe other Met fans are be like, oh, I can't believe it. Jake is gone. He was the longest tenured Met. Yeah, he's gone, but I'm not surprised. I'm not shocked. So... Let's see what the Mets could do to pick up the pieces to see what they could bring here over the course of the next days or weeks to come with the winter meetings beginning today in San Diego. So you know a lot of rumors and a lot's going to be percolating here over these next few days. So let's see what's going to be bandied about here with these reports coming out of San Diego with the winter meetings if there's going to be any activity or any possibility that a signing is going to, is going to be imminent and even along the likes of a guy like Aaron Judge, and I talked about that the other day with the eight-year, $300 million offer. Is there another team out there that's willing to push it to nine, maybe ten? San Francisco, hello? So I'm sure a lot's going to be brought about over the course of these next few days, and you know I'll be on top of it once we get to Thursday when we reconvene at that time. And then you had the vote there yesterday when it came to the Contemporary Baseball Committee. I also talked about this on Thursday, and the only person that not only was elected as to be enshrined into Cooperstown this coming July, but the one that was voted unanimously by the committee, all votes 16 was Fred McGriff. And one of the guys that's on the committee was Chipper Jones, so you know that his vote was probably the first one into the hat. But McGriff, who had a very good career, And I would say he's a borderline Hall of Famer. I get it. He had a lot of years where he was 30 and 100. Didn't have the batting average numbers because you'd like to have 30, 100, and 300. And also 100 runs scored. That also goes a long way, especially when it comes to making the Hall of Fame. And I understand this is a year where you're not going to have a lot of automatics. The one being Carlos Beltran. And we talked about him the other day. As to me, in my eyes, he is short of the Hall of Fame. Another borderline guy, which I'm sure somewhere down the road he probably will get in, but not a slam dunk. You had a bunch of other guys, John Lackey and Jared Weaver. You had other guys like that that are nowhere near Hall of Famers by any stretch. But for McGriff to get it, we know Bonds, Clemens, even Rafael Palmero. Those are guys that you wondered how many votes that they were going to get. They actually got less than four votes by the committee. And of course, the committee had to be 12 out of 16 votes 75% in order for a player to automatically make it and officially be a Hall of Famer and like I mentioned McGriff got all 16 votes so he was good the one player that was close to getting 
12 of the votes and only got 8 was Don Manningly. So he was at 50%. Then Schilling got 7 votes. Dale Murphy got 6 votes. And I'm very disappointed that Albert Bell got less than 4 votes by this committee because to me, as I said the other day, he is a Hall of Famer when you look at his numbers. But I guess not only amongst the writers and maybe some of the general public, but maybe amongst other players in the sport, Albert Bell was not their favorite. Maybe he came across as cantankerous or irascible or a guy that just danced to his own drum where he tuned out a lot of his brethren. Who knows? But at the same time, Bell is not a guy that's going to make it into the hall, at least this go around. So Fred McGriff is the one guy that is going to be inducted into Cooperstown. And speaking of Hall of Fame and Hall of Famers, sadly, Gaylord Perry it was a guy that had won two Cy Youngs, one with Cleveland and later with San Diego, 314 wins, was famously known for throwing a spitball, died at the age of 84, I believe it was Thursday afternoon, thoughts, prayers, and condolences, also had a brother who pitched in the majors, Jim Perry, but Gaylord Perry, who was well known throughout the sport, especially for that spitball, being able to throw it or even doctor it, however it may be necessary, and for Perry to be one of the, I guess you could say, pioneers of that pitch. And I'm sure there was plenty of pitchers before him who threw that pitch, but knowing that he made it more famous, especially in this modern era, again, sad that he passed away, 84. Once again, thoughts, prayers, and condolences go out to his family. Now as I turn my attention to soccer, I put on the soccer cleats and get prepared for what now will be the final stretch of games as we lead into the semifinal and final round, which won't be played for another two weeks. In fact, the final will be two weeks from yesterday. One team that will not make it is the USA team as they lost to Netherlands on Saturday and they had their opportunities. They had a point-blank shot there in the opening two minutes of the game where that would have been monumental for them. Granted that you still had to play another 90 plus minutes, but if USA were to be able to get on the board that early, who knows what the momentum would have been like because just eight minutes later, the Netherlands got their first goal of the game and even with the USA team having another good opportunity at around the 40th minute, the killer was the goal in the 45th plus one minute right before halftime to where the Netherlands had a beautiful execution of a goal to make it 2-0 and sometimes 2-0 is an insurmountable lead even in a soccer game, and especially as you get deep into this tournament, but with the USA team having a little bit of a flurry there, late in the 69th into the 70th minute, and then they had a shot for an open net and a breakaway where it was deflected out of bounds by the Netherlands defenseman, so with the corner kick, they were able to get a goal in the 75th minute, and you're thinking, wow, with that stretch, 69 from the 70 to the 75th minute, a lot of the Play was in the Netherlands zone and they were able to capitalize there in that corner kick. So now you're probably feeling good to think that the USA has all this momentum for them to get, to hope to get the equalizer to at least make it a game, get it into overtime and then into penalty kicks as I talked about there on Thursday. But in the 81st minute, and that's what happens sometimes where, not to say that they let up, but when the Netherlands got into their zone finally and they were able to capitalize on a play there from the left of the goal, where they had a setup right there in front, and what could you say? It was just beautiful execution on the Netherlands' part. 3-1 to one there in the 81st minute, and as time trickled, and once we got into the plus six minutes after the 90th minute, 
U.S. had nothing left and they foiled their chance, the Netherlands that is, for the USA to move on to play Argentina and that's not going to be the case as the Netherlands moves on and USA has four years or three and a half years to sit on this and wonder what could have been. And what more can you say? Hopefully they could build off of this. It's a young team. Maybe they could get a couple of players or two to be a part of this team where you know they're going to be a part of the next World Cup in 2026 as the USA is going to be a host. So if there's any silver lining, at least they know that they could play terrible in the games leading up for the qualifiers, etc. But they will be a part of that next World Cup. I would think, what, off the top of my head, I guess it's going to be either May or June in the year 2026. As far as any other news and notes here, we know Germany is out of the World Cup. Uh, catastrophe, as stated by forward Thomas Muller. And for Germany, not only losing to Japan early on, Japan has actually played pretty well here in this tournament, but then also having an opportunity to where they had lost, or I should say Japan beating Spain, which pretty much sealed their fate. And by them losing to Japan in the opener and Japan beating Spain, that means Germany is ousted from this tournament. They needed for Japan to either tie or lose. And with that not being the case, Germany is no longer part of the tournament. And that's a big blow because Germany, as we all know, one of the heavyweights of this whole tournament. And by them not being there, and also with Belgium out, and from some of the stuff that I even heard, that they were a little bit overrated coming into this tournament. A lot of people thought that they could be a dark horse. But they were dysfunctional. I believe a lot of the teammates were griping and sniping at each other from some of the things that I heard. Not that I follow it to a T, but that was a surprise just hearing that type of news, that knowing that although they could have been a team that would have gone far in this World Cup, but I guess they imploded internally and therefore you don't see them here in this setting. But we do see Argentina, and I know that was a big story there the other day as they beat Australia and Lionel Messi playing in his 1,000th game and also scoring a goal in the process, which broke Diego Maradona's World Cup goals tally, now has nine overall. Didn't really celebrate, he was more relieved knowing that they were advancing because a lot of the questions in the post-match were him playing in that 1,000th game and him surpassing Diego Maradona, of course, coming from Argentina. We know how important that is for that region of the world but Messi just pretty much exhaled and look at that as oh I'm just glad that it's over with and now we can move on to bigger and better things and then you have Brazil which is going to be interesting because Brazil with two of their top guys out for the rest of the tournament and Gabriel Jesus and Alex Telles but Brazil as we all know is probably going to be a favorite to win this thing but without those guys who knows how long they're going to be as far as for this tournament goes And when we take a look at the bracket here as we get deeper into this tournament, I know the semifinal obviously is not going to be until next Thursday. I believe it's a week and a half from today. But let me pull up the bracket here as we go through it. You have two games today. In fact, one is being played as I speak. Japan and Croatia are tied in the 70th minute. Then you have Brazil, as I mentioned. They'll play South Korea in the second game. And the winner of those two games will face off against one another, Japan, Croatia, Brazil, South Korea. And they're in the bracket with Netherlands and Argentina. So, of course, they will square off and advance there to the quarterfinal round after those four teams play one another today and then move on to that bracket against the Netherlands and Argentina. And then you have England playing France, which will be 
on Friday. Oh, no, excuse me. That'll be on Saturday. And that's going to be a heavyweight matchup. I'm sure a lot of people are going to be in tune to that where England beat Senegal and then France beat Poland yesterday. So they will go at it come Saturday. And then you'll have tomorrow, Morocco and Spain, Portugal and Switzerland. The winner of those two matches will be in the bracket with England and France. And then, of course, from that point, they will face off in the quarterfinals and then move on from there to your semifinal and so on. So obviously, I'll have my fingers on the pulse when it comes to the World Cup. We'll see and revisit this on Thursday. And then finally, just a quick note here with boxing. Tyson Fury had a match there on Saturday against Derek Chisora as he beat him in a TKO in the 10th round. And I guess no surprise there. It was their third matchup. And Fury, as I stated there on Thursday, retired in the summertime, came back because he was bored, which I blasted. His thought process, and I get it. Who am I to tell him what to do? You'd have to go back and listen to that for yourself to get a full idea as to what I meant, in my opinion, for him returning. Now, we know he's not a physical specimen, to say the least, but he looked even just a tad bit worse than he did when I look back on that fight last year, which happened to be on my wedding night when he fought Deontay Wilder. So, again, nobody's going to look at him as an Anthony Joshua or even an Evander Holyfield just cut to the nines and shredded. But to me, he looked like he was even more out of shape. But he punished Tesora here in this fight on Saturday and even called out Alessander Yusik, who was at the fight at ringside, calling him out and saying all these expletives and wanting to fight him and let's see if they could get in the ring together and duke it out for the heavyweight bout. But as we all know, the heavyweight division is a joke, as evidence is what we saw there Saturday. No offense to the fighters, but that's just how it's been pretty much for the last two decades. Let's call it as we see it. So let's see what Fury's going to do. And there's a guy that came out of retirement because of boredom. But by the way, talked about his elbow, arm, and shoulder ailments to the point where he even mentioned in an interview that he may need an arm transplant. So that's all you need to know as far as my thoughts on him wanting return. Not because of the money, not because of the fame or the attention. It's because he was bored. So you could certainly base my opinions and my feelings on his return on that and how I thought that was a bit asinine. But anyway, God bless Fury as he won his bout and maybe Yusek will be in his near future. That'll do it for this episode, people. Another one in the books. As always, thank you so much for stopping by, turning to me as your source for all the source in the world of sports. It does not get taken for granted and what it means for you to listen to what it is that I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, review this podcast on wherever you get your podcast. Throw me a few stars, write a review, just to increase the visibility as we get closer to the end of the year. Share with the sports fan in your life, even on social media. Take a screenshot, share it with me on the following. Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, The J Reels Podcast. Twitter, J Reels, one just the number. And if you want to hit me up with a question, comment, criticism, praise, or even a suggestion, you could do so by going to the Podcast at gmail.com. I'll be more than happy to follow up with you guys and gals. And lastly, if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to my Patreon page, P is in Paul, A-T is in Tom, R-E-O-N is in Nancy, dot com, slash the Podcast. Whatever you want to put forth is going 100% to this endeavor, to this production, to the equipment, to the upkeep of the website, etc., Because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to talk about, people. If you could hear by the passion, the fire, the fury in my voice, as I love to critique, praise, share my thoughts, opinions, analysis, 
on anything and everything that happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Center to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby.